Now, if you turn to Micah chapter 3. Just a quick reminder of our structure here of Micah. We mentioned this last week. Micah is broken up into three parts. Chapters 1 and 2 go together. Chapters 3 through 5, which we'll be looking at the first half of that section today. And then chapters 6 and 7. And there's kind of this theme of judgment and hope in each of those three sections. So we'll be seeing that this morning. Micah 3, 1 through 4, 7. And I said, hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time, because they have made their deeds evil. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets, who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Therefore, it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets. And the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips for there is no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. And no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God. 
but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the prophets who spoke boldly on your behalf so that your people might hear. God, may we today as your people hear. May we hear your word. God, may we be confronted by the reality of our sin. And may we see the glory of the hope that we have in your promised restoration. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I already mentioned the structure of Micah. It's pretty straightforward. Um, This idea of kind of judgment and, and hope. Last week, our sermon title was From Judgment to Hope. This week, it is From Ruins to Glory, which we'll see in this passage. I think we all love a good rags to riches story, don't we? Long before there was Cinderella, there was a story of Rodopis, a Greek slave girl who marries the king of Egypt. This dates back to somewhere between 7 BC and 23 AD. There have been many variations of this story in different languages and in different cultures for the past 2000 years. The term Cinderella story has made its way into our vernacular, particularly as it relates to sports. College basketball's March Madness tournament, which is referred to as the big dance, often has teams who come in of low ranking and surprise people and win a couple games. And the question is always, is this going to be the Cinderella team? Is this going to be a team that makes it to the final four, maybe that wins a championship? doing things that have have never been done before or we might think about Kurt Warner the NFL quarterback who was on the Packers practice squad but behind Brett Favre he was like fourth or fifth on the depth chart in 1994 and Kurt Warner did not make the team that year and instead he was bagging groceries and playing in the arena league he finally got an opportunity he was back in the league in 1998 playing for the St. Louis Rams In 1999, he was a backup to Trent Green, who went down with an injury, and he comes in and has this massive season. They win the Super Bowl, unprecedented. Uh, He goes on to win two MVPs. They would go to three Super Bowls total, and now Kurt Warner is in the Hall of Fame. There was actually a movie made. I haven't seen it yet. I know some of you have. Uh, American Underdog, uh, just a totally unprecedented story. And we love these stories, right? We make movies about these types of things. And this is really woven into the fabric of the American narrative. People overcoming adversity through grit and determination and maybe a little bit of luck, right? Being in the right place at the right time. There's a reason why these stories are so rare. The reality is that most of us cannot overcome the adversity in our lives by relying on our own efforts. We don't have a 
you know, $50 million arm like Aaron Rodgers, right? We don't have all of these things to rely on. And if the moral of the story is just try harder and eventually you'll succeed, that leaves the vast majority of humanity feeling pretty depressed and defeated. Because the reality is that life is complicated and messy. And most of us don't have a Cinderella story to tell. Our story is the more realistic human story. A story that goes back to our first parents who believed a lie and did not heed God's command. How did God respond? Because you have done this, I will. And then he goes on to curse Adam and to curse Eve. But there is a promise of future hope in the midst of the sin, in the midst of these curses. There is a hope that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. That despite human sin and the judgment and the curse of God against our sin, that hope is always held out for us. And we get a glimpse of this future hope in our passage today. And this really is the framework for understanding the entire history of redemption throughout scripture, particularly this passage in Micah 3, 3, 1 to 4, 7. Now, if you're taking notes today, the main idea is that though the ruin of sin is great, God's redemption and restoration to glory are greater. Though the ruin of sin is great, God's redemption and restoration to glory are greater. So just a little, if you weren't here last week, kind of a little heads up on the context. Micah prophesied to both the northern kingdom of Israel, talking about uh, the fall of Samaria that was coming. That's much of what chapter one is about. Uh, This would have been prior to 722 BC when Samaria fell. And he primarily prophesied to the southern kingdom of Judah, warning them of what was coming, uh, not only in 586 BC with the the fall of Jerusalem, the final fall of Jerusalem, but even there's warnings, uh, hints of of what was coming when the Assyrians would come in 701 BC um, under Sennacherib. And you can read about that in uh, Kings and and in Isaiah. But this this is what Micah's context is. This is where he is prophesying. This is the things that he is talking about. And we saw last week in chapter two, the judgment against the leaders and the prophets in Judah who are oppressing the people, specifically landowners, taking, stealing land from people. And there was last week in the midst of all that we saw in the first two chapters, there was a brief glimmer of hope at the end of chapter two in the last two verses about God, how God would lead his people as both shepherd and king. But now in chapter three here, we had that, those two verses there, that glimmer of hope. And Micah's going to pick back up on the judgment against Judah's leaders that we saw in chapter two. So we're going to look at this whole thing, three, one to four, seven in two parts. Uh, the first part is chapter, in chapter three. So if you're taking notes, again, this is the first section here. It's a little bit long. I'll, re- I'll repeat it. And there's, there's two parts to each of these headings. First, God will justly judge according to his covenant promises. God will justly judge according to his covenant promises. Therefore, we should not be surprised that our sin has consequences. 
Therefore, we should not be surprised that our sin has consequences. Chapter 3 begins here with the word that we see at the beginning of each section in Micah. Chapter 1, chapter 3, chapter 6. They all begin with this word, hear. We actually see it twice here in chapter 3, in verse 1 and verse 9. It says here in verse 1, Hear, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? Now the heads and rulers here are those who were in charge of a corrupt judicial system. It is they who should have known justice. But instead, they did the exact opposite of what God told his people when he spoke through the prophet Amos, which we saw several weeks ago. The people were commanded by God in Amos 5.15 to hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. What do we see here in verse 2? These leaders are those who hate the good and love the evil. It is the opposite of what God had commanded. And then we get this graphic description of how they are treating human beings like animals prepared for sacrifice. Look at the second line in verse 2 through verse 3. They tear the skin off of God's people, the flesh off of their bones. They eat the flesh of their people. They flay their skin. They break their bones in pieces. They chop them up like meat in a pot like flesh in a cauldron. Obviously, this is speaking figuratively, right? They weren't practicing cannibalism. They weren't actually chopping people up and throwing them into pots and cooking them and eating them. But God is saying, this is how you are treating my people. You're treating them as if they're just this this item to be used for your own pleasure, for for your own sacrifices. This is a horrible thing that is being done, this injustice that is being done. We see then the consequences of their actions in verse 4. Those leaders who are are treating God's people this way, it says, Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time, because they have made their deeds evil. God refusing to answer and God hiding his face is what one commentator calls the essence of punishment in hell. We don't want God's face hidden from us. It's the cry of David in Psalm 13.1. He cries out to God, how long will you hide your face from me? David also prays in Psalm 51.9 that God would hide his face from his sins. Isn't this the essence of what we seek to do every week when we confess our sins together? We acknowledge that God is just in his judgment and that we are dependent upon him for forgiveness and the blotting out of our iniquities, which David also connects to the hiding of God's face from our sins in Psalm 51. Now, sadly here, the prophets who were supposed to be speaking God's word to God's people in order to lead them closer to God, they were having the exact opposite effect. Look at verse 5. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray. They were leading God's people astray. They were declaring peace when they had something to eat. Meaning when all was well with them, they gave a false message of hope. Like today's prosperity preachers. But when there was no word from the Lord, was to say, they declared war against the Lord. 
They accused the Lord, which is totally nonsensical. Had they learned nothing of the history of Yahweh leading his people in war? Had they forgotten about the Egyptian army drowned at the bottom of the Red Sea? Or the nations who had been defeated in Canaan, the, the nations whom Israel had routed? The prophets here who were to be the mouthpiece of God are now declaring war against him, and that is completely ludicrous. We see more consequences then for their actions in verses 6 and 7. Therefore, it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets and the day shall be black over them. Notice this repetition here. Night and darkness, no sun, blackness. The things that they had been practicing and doing to even false things to hear from the Lord, there would be none of, there would be no fruit from any of that. Verse seven, the seers shall be disregarded and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips for there is no answer from God. No answer from God. Again, there's a parallel to what we saw in Amos. Amos 8, 9 through 11, God speaks of darkness coming upon the land. And he speaks of a famine. He said, it's not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the word of the Lord. That's what's happening here. There is no message from the Lord. It is utter darkness for the prophets. Because of their sin, God refuses to speak through them. But then notice what's going on here. Micah sets up this whole scene to defend his legitimacy as a prophet of God in verse 8. Now, we're not told exactly what the response to Micah's prophesying was, but he had been prophesying for years against both Israel in the north and now Judah in the south. So no doubt there was opposition to his message, to God speaking through him. Look at these descriptive words in verse 8. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord, contrary to the false prophets who had no power because they were not filled with the spirit of the Lord. And with justice and might, the things again that these false prophets and these leaders in Israel were not following and doing, to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. These false prophets were not giving the true message of God, they were not willing to speak the true message of God to, to Judah and to, to Jacob and to Israel regarding their sin. And Micah says, I'm going to speak the truth. I'm filled with the spirit of the Lord, unlike these false prophets. So God is accomplishing through Micah what these leaders in Judah were not accomplishing. Now, verses 9 through 11 are a mirroring, in a sense, of verses 1 through 7, where we see again this call to hear. But now the emphasis shifts to the actual physical location in which the people had placed their hope. Zion here is probably a reference to the Temple Mount specifically. Uh, Zion and Jerusalem are often used synonymously, but here it's probably talking about that smaller piece of land where the Temple Mount was. Then Jerusalem is talking about the entire city. It says again, hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, 
who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. How they do this is described in verse 11. Their iniquity is described. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. These things are all things that were forbidden by God's forbidden by God for his people. They were not to do these things. They were not to give judgments uh, for bribes. They were not to teach. The priests were not to teach and, and get paid for it. The prophets were not to practice divination. But here they are doing all of these things that God had explicitly told them not to do. Now, the second half of verse 11 is very troubling. It says, yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Even in the midst of this great iniquity, they think that they are relying on God. They say that they lean on the Lord. They say, isn't God among us? Look at this beautiful temple. Look at this city that we have built. There's no way that disaster will come. There's no way that this temple will ever be destroyed. There's no way that the walls of this city, which we have built with our own hands to protect ourselves, will ever be torn down. Now, this language that we see here, especially that last line, no disaster shall come upon us. It's usually the language of the unbelieving nations around them. The fools who say in their heart, there is no God, and God does not see. But now God's own people think that they will be protected by the temple and the city. And God says, I don't think so. Verse 12. Therefore, because of you, leaders, priests, prophets, heads of the house of Israel, because of you and your iniquity, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house, a wooded height. The place in which they had put their trust would be leveled to the ground. Now it's hard for us to picture a city becoming a heap of ruins. We may see pictures of war-torn places, but we rarely get to see something like this in person. It is hard to fathom. Last February, Cademan and I took a trip down to Kentucky to visit my dad and my stepmom. They had moved down there full-time sometime in 2021, I think in the summer of 2021. And they live about 40 miles to the east of Mayfield, the town that was devastated by the F4 tornado in December of 2021. Now, a tornado had just missed my parents' house. There were tons of tornadoes all over the place. And heard all about it. I had watched some drone footage. You can actually go watch drone footage of flying over Mayfield in the days following the tornado. Totally surreal. But when my dad drove us through this town of 10,000 people less than two months after this tornado had hit, and you see everything just completely leveled, uh, it was it was surreal. Uh, I'd never witnessed. I've seen some tornado damage, but to see an entire town pretty much leveled to the ground, uh, to see that devastation, it was, it was literally in ruins. Now, the good news, obviously, is, as we know, is after those things, 
there's a desire to rebuild, right? There is a, a future hope that we're going we're gonna to rebuild this town. We're going to get our lives back despite the devastation and the ruin. Uh, there's no choice but to look to the future. People have to live somewhere. There's, there's already many things still in, in place in that city, so they're trying to rebuild. And in Micah's day, despite the promise of the coming destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, God's people were encouraged to look to the future, to look to a hope that would come. And that's what we see here in chapter four. This is our second section. Again, this is in two parts here, if you want to write this down. God will faithfully and mercifully restore according to his covenant promises. God will faithfully and mercifully restore according to his covenant promises. Therefore, we should not let the ruins of our sin keep us from hoping for our future glory. Therefore, we should not let the ruins of our sin keep us from hoping for our future glory. Chapter 4 here is a sudden reversal of the devastation in 312. Notice that the mountain of the house of the Lord in 312, which becomes a forest, now becomes this glorious place to which the nations come to seek God and to walk in his ways. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. We see here Zion and Jerusalem, the places that were leveled to the ground, now being the place from which God's law and word would go forth. This is a reversal of what we saw in chapter 3, that what the priests and the prophets failed to do. The priests connected to the law, the prophets connected to the word. Now these things would be restored by God. God is doing what the heads and the rulers in Judah failed to do. He is judging justly. Look at verse 3. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. Then we see this imagery of weapons of war being turned into agricultural tools as war ceases. Middle of verse 3, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Then verse 4 is a reference back to the days of the United Kingdom under Solomon, where it says in 1 Kings 4.25 that Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, all the days of Solomon. So what is the message here from Micah? Is it that they will go back to some golden age that they once experienced under Solomon? Definitely not, right? Destruction was coming. And we know from verse 1 and verse 6 that this is not talking about going back to some golden age. 
We've seen this language already several times in the Minor Prophets. Verse 1, shall come to pass in the latter days. Verse 6, in that day. This language here is eschatological language. It's a fancy word for end times. Eschatology is the study of last things. It comes from the Greek word eschatos, which means last or final. This word here, latter days, in verse 1, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it is translated the same way as the word last days, which occurs very many times in the New Testament. One example is in John 6.40, where Jesus says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus here is speaking about the end, the end end. So if this is not speaking here of a return to a previous golden age, is it speaking of a future golden age on earth? Now, there is kind of a, a pause in here. There is a lot of information that's way too much to get into and way too technical. I would encourage you uh, maybe to go look some of these things up, to, to read some of these sections. Um, but we do know uh, that the temple, this temple that's, that was destroyed in 586, it was rebuilt in 516. I can read about these things in Ezra and Nehemiah, the rebuilding of the temple, the rebuilding of the walls. Of Jerusalem, we know that the people did return from exile. So there was a sense where there was some fulfillment of what Micah was talking about. Um, during Holy Week, Jesus taught in the temple. And there are some kind of references here to maybe the, the nations being gathered where, where there would have been Gentiles in Jerusalem at that time. So there's a, a message of, of hope going out to the nations. So there's this partial fulfillment. Uh, Jesus also talked about the destruction of the temple, which would happen in 70 AD. He kind of refers to the, the temple, uh, talking about destroy the temple and he'll raise it up. He's talking about his own body. There's language in Paul talking about the church now being the temple of God. So there are a lot of things that, that help us to see what Micah was talking about here was not this golden age of this, this glo the glory days of Israel under Solomon returning and being a thing again. Uh, there, there were some glimpses of some of those things but ultimately through the ministry of jesus and through now the ministry of the church we see that 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 narrative that idea of the temple has really shifted so there's also a lot of debate over this question is this going to be a golden age on earth when we think about kind of three main eschatological positions and i'm not going to dive too deeply into this here and if you're interested i can give you some resources to look look at but uh, there are basically three main positions the premillennial position the postmillennial position and the amillennial position and there are a lot of nuances between all of these but those are kind of the main categories now the premillennial position sees this restoration of the temple and restoration of Jerusalem that's that is actually fulfilled in history that the nations coming to Jerusalem will happen after Jesus returns during a literal 1,000-year millennial kingdom. The post-millennial position sees these things being fulfilled during a golden age on earth before Jesus returns. And then the amillennial position sees this as referring to the new heavens and the new earth. These things will all be fulfilled 
after Jesus returns. Now, I want to say that people who truly love Jesus hold to all three of these views, not simultaneously, but people hold to, someone might try, I don't know how you do that, but, uh, but this is not a salvation issue, okay? That's one thing I want to clarify. Uh, if you've already gone through our membership class, or if you're hoping to go through our membership class in the future, uh, one of the things we talk about, we have this concentric circle uh, target diagram with four, four layers. The, the middle is absolutes. Uh, those are gospel issues that, like, if you don't believe this, you're not a Christian, okay? This is, this is not an absolute issue. Uh, then there are convictions, which are things that we would say, these are pretty important, right? These are things that maybe we hold to as, as Reformed and Presbyterian that would like, distinguish us from our Lutheran brothers and sisters or Anglicans, things like that. Um, and then there are opinions. These would be things like even within our Reformed and Presbyterian faith, uh, things that we might not all agree on, this would be one of those issues. Uh, there are people in the PCA who hold to all three of these different views. And then there are questions like who were the Nephilim and did Adam have a belly button, right? Like those things uh, really don't matter. So this would be an opinion uh, piece. It's not, you, we don't have to take a specific stance to be ordained in the PCA. You don't need to take a specific stance to become a member in this church. Uh, if you want to know my position, uh, and I'd love to tell you more about it, I take the amillennial position. I think that we will not see these things unfold in human history. In my opinion, if you want my art, kind of my argument for it, I think it's hard to read the trajectory of the New Testament and come to a place other than the amillennial position, especially uh, when we read Matthew 24, where Jesus foretells the destruction of the temple, where he says that nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Not sure how we can see that. And then see Micah 4.3 saying that nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. I don't see how that can refer to the present age. I also believe that the book of Revelation does not paint a picture of peace leading up to the return of Jesus. Uh, even a premillennial interpretation of Revelation 20 and the thousand years still includes war in the present age before the final judgment. So uh, there are some, um, some difficulties. Now, it's way more complicated than that. Um, if you want a really good book on eschatology, there's a book called The Promise of the Future. It's like 400 and some pages. Um, it's amazing. One of, the, one of my favorite books that I read in seminary, if you want a, a good description of, of these things. But um, that's kind of that's my, just my brief overview on those things. But I would argue that the best way to understand this is that Micah 4 is a picture of what we see in Revelation 21 and 22, which will all unfold when Jesus returns. Now, we already read part of Revelation 21. I want you to turn there with me now, and then also keep a finger in Micah 4, because we're going to be going back there to look at verses 6 and 7. Look with me at Revelation 21, verses 22 through 27. <clears throat> And notice some of the parallels to what we just saw in Micah. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. So that picture in Micah 3 of darkness, right? Darkness from the prophet's 
God not speaking a word. Now God shines. God is the light. His glory gives the light. We see this picture from ruins to glory. Verse 24, by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, this description here follows what we see earlier in the chapter of the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. This is after the judgment. This is, the, this is final, final, right? This is the picture of heaven and where, what we will, where we will be with God for eternity. These things happening happen in the end end. They don't happen in some stages like during some period on earth before the end or during some Jesus is going to come back once and then there's going to be this other period and then he's going to come back again. Again, I think it's hard to, to square those things with what the New Testament teaches. So I said at the beginning of this second section that we should not let the ruins of our sin keep us from hoping for our future glory. The reality is that life is hard and we are sinners we sin and we are sinned against on a daily basis. If you spend any time around other people, you're going to sin against them. We all have things in our lives that we regret. Things that we wish we could go back and do differently, right? Things that we, if we had a magic wand, right? If we had Cinderella's fairy godmother's magic wand, we wish, if I could just go back and like undo that one thing or, or do it differently. Things that are, left in ruins, and maybe will never be repaired this side of heaven. Broken relationships, broken dreams, wasted opportunities. But if you are in Christ, those things do not define you. Those broken relationships, those wasted opportunities, those things that you have done that you, you wish you could undo, those things don't define you. What does? Verse 27 here, that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. That's what defines you. That's something that you can't do. It's the Lamb's book, not yours. You can't write your name in that book. So the question is, do you trust him alone for the forgiveness of your sins? And to deliver you from the wrath to come? Or are you trying to write your own name in his book? God is the one who faithfully and mercifully restores us according to his covenant promises. Despite our sin, we get God and his presence forever. That's the beauty of what we see in the first five verses of Revelation 22. Look with me there. John says, and the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the tree, uh, either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. This is an imagery of Eden restored. 
Notice the next phrase here. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Keep this in mind as we go back to Micah 4, 6, and 7. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face. No longer will God's face be hidden. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. Again, notice the reversal of the imagery of darkness in Micah 3. Night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Now flip back to Micah 4, 6 and 7. And notice the parallel, the imagery in Revelation 22. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. This is us. We were the lame. We were those who had been driven away. We were those who were afflicted. But God has made us a remnant by writing our names in the Lamb's book of life. This is the ultimate story of rags to riches. Greater than any fairy tale. Greater than any heroic sports team or athlete beating the odds. And it is through faith in Jesus Christ that we can be assured of these precious, precious promises. That we can go from ruins to glory. And that we can look forward with joy and great anticipation to the day when we will see him face to face. And we will, when we will reign with him forever and ever. Let us pray. God, you are so good to us. You have been so gracious and merciful. You've been so faithful. God, despite our sin, despite our injustice, despite our unwillingness to, to hear your word at times, despite our desire to go our own way, to do our own thing, God, you pursue us. You do not let us run from you, ultimately. Our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And we have a great future hope because of your promises. God, we're reminded of what awaits us as your people. And we're reminded that in the already and the not yet, as we wait for those truths to, to become an, an ultimate reality. We're reminded that you want us to share that hope with others. You want us to be light in this world, in a dark world where your truth is not heeded. God, help us to see, to see clearly, to see your love for those who are lost, to see your desire for people from every tribe, tongue, tongue, and nation to be gathered 
to worship you. So God sent us out from here as your ambassadors to live for you in this world, to call others to be reconciled to Christ, to go out as those who are reminded that our sins are forgiven and that we have hope. We have hope of, of glory out of the shadow of ruins. We thank you in Jesus name. Amen.